My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. We're going through Matthew's Gospel. So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48, is where we'll be today. If you don't have your own copy of God's Word, we'd love for you to uh, grab that Bible that's uh, in the chair in front of you, that, that black cover. Uh, you can take that one home if you'd like. Uh, but the passage we're looking at today, uh, the page numbers should be in your bulletin. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. The passage we're going to look at today is uh, connected to the one that we read last week. Uh, last week, Jesus told us not to resist, not to retaliate against someone who would do us evil. Jesus calls us to die to our pride, to die to our, that instinct of self-preservation and self-protection, and to deny ourselves instead. Uh, the, the popular word from a few years ago comes to mind, snowflake, uh, a word used particularly by older generations to describe younger generations that seemed particularly weak or fragile. But if Jesus is right, we're all fragile. We're all a little snowflakeish. We have a tendency to be defensive, fragile, touchy. And that's what Jesus challenges when he says uh, what he said last week. He tells us to trust him, to, defend, to not defend ourselves, but to deny ourselves. When slapped, to turn the other cheek. When made to carry a burden one mile, to go two miles. If last week was the passive form, uh, this week Jesus is going to give us the positive form of self-denial, which is active love. So let's uh, give our attention to God's word, Matthew 5, verses 43 through 48. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. And while the grass withers and the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray and ask for his help. Lord Jesus, this is the tall order. It goes against everything within us. And so we pray that you would help us to understand your word. And that you would help us to apply your word. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would bring transformation to us. Uh, change us from the inside out. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, last week I used the word radical. 
to describe what Jesus is uh, talking about here. And now that word radical can have two meanings. Uh, the meaning that we're accustomed to, what we mean when we often use the word radical, is a, a, a radical change, right? Something that is so different than what's normal or what's traditional. Uh, we might say countercultural. And Jesus' commands here are certainly radical in that sense, right? It's very natural for us to hate our enemies. So Jesus is calling us to something that is a dramatic change from the norm. But radical also has another meaning, an older meaning. Uh, the, the Latin word from which radical comes means root. And so radical, uh, a radical change would be something that goes all the way down to the root, a complete and total change. And that also is what Jesus is calling us to. Not only, not only is this a dramatic departure from what we would consider normal behavior, uh, but it's also a deep down change. Jesus is calling us to a radical renovation. Uh, in fact, what Jesus is calling us to is he's, uh, he's calling us and he's making us like himself. And so Jesus calls us to a radical love that reflects the very heart of God. And I bet I didn't update the outline in the, in the thing. So you're just going to have to take my word for it. Um, Jesus calls us to a radical love that reflects the very heart of God. Three things. I'll say them slowly since they're not on the screen behind me. Three things. One, Jesus challenges our natural response. Two, Jesus calls us to a supernatural love. And then three, Jesus gives us a command and a promise. So three things Jesus does. He challenges our natural response. He calls us to a supernatural love. And then he gives us the command, a command and a promise. Jesus challenges our natural response Look at verse 43. He says, you've heard it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, Jesus here is not challenging the Old Testament. He's challenging a misuse of the Old Testament. Because he's, he seems to be quoting a commonly held tradition or teaching, probably that of the scribes and Pharisees. Um, and this tradition that Jesus quotes changes what the Old Testament says. And it changes it in two ways. First, it shortens Leviticus 19.18. Here's what that says. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so what Jesus is quoting actually shortens it narrows the standard of love by leaving out as yourself. It just says, love your neighbor. Well, you tell me to love my neighbor, there's any number of ways I can do that. But if you add the qualifier, love your neighbor as much as or in the same way as you love yourself, well, that adds a whole new standard. But the, it appears that the scribes and Pharisees shortened it. They left that little part off. Not only that, 
But they added something. Hate your enemy. Which is not included and isn't taught in the Old Testament. Now you might, uh, could infer that from certain passages. Maybe the, what we call the imprecatory psalms. There's a fancy Jeopardy word that you can use later on. Uh, these are the psalms that are pretty uncomfortable for us to read because they talk about God judging his enemies. Um, but the Bible nowhere says, hate your enemies. That's talking about God's enemies. And even if you were going to infer that, you would have to ignore passages like this. From a little bit later in Leviticus 19, verse 34, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you, so the foreigner, you shall treat him as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Or this one from Proverbs 25, 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head and the Lord will reward you. Paul quotes that one in Romans chapter 12, verse 20. So Jesus is challenging not the Old Testament, but the way that some teachers had changed the Old Testament to fit our natural bent. And what is our natural bent? How are we naturally bent? We love those who love us. When we do that, we, we narrow the word neighbor just like the scribes and Pharisees, to mean our friends, those close to us, those like us. And so we love those who love us, and we hate our enemies. Now, maybe not pure, angry hatred, not the strongest form of that word that we often think about, but we certainly dislike and withhold favor from certain people. One Bible scholar puts it this way, we live in a world where it is impossible for hatred to starve. It has plenty to feed on. Jesus says in verses 46 and 47 that this is actually how people normally behave. Look at those words. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? Now, so that it's clear for modern ears, uh, right, a tax collector was a Jewish person who sided with the Roman Empire. So they were, they were outsiders. They were viewed as traitors. They were disliked. Uh, in verse 47, he talks about the Gentiles, so non-Jewish people. And so Jesus uses two categories that would have been very derogatory and insulting to his hearers. And he says, look, these people that you despise, they love those who love them. Are you any different than that? So let me just put it in context for a modern uh, audience, because I think I'm speaking to a, a modern conservative audience. This is, this is what Jesus would say to us. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even liberals do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Don't even woke people? Do the same? That's what Jesus is saying to his contemporaries. That's how people normally behave. We normally love those who love us and dislike or hate those that we 
don't like. We, we live in a world of reciprocity, of retaliation. Punish those who punish you. Do good to those who do good to you. You scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. But Jesus calls us to more. He, Jesus calls us to a supernatural love. He says, not just love your neighbor. I say, love your enemy. Who's my enemy? Uh, Paul Miller has a helpful discussion of this on his See Jesus podcast. He talks about how we, are, we think that our enemy list is really small. Because we, you know, when we think of the word enemy, we think of like the joker to Batman. And we don't have many of those. We like to think that our, uh, we, we reserve the term enemy for really bad people. And so we like to think that our enemy list is small. But an enemy is really anyone who is opposed to you. Someone with whom you have difference. Someone with whom you don't get along. Could be a child in your own home. Could be your enemy. And Jesus says, love your enemy. And, and love here is not just a, a warm, fuzzy feeling. Jesus, Jesus isn't saying to have sentimental feelings, but is actually saying to actively seek to do them good. In fact, you can do good to an enemy without feeling warm and fuzzy about them. Uh, I recently heard of, um, in, that, in that same podcast, he talked about the Marshall Plan, um, which if you don't know what that is, that was uh, the plan that we engaged in post-World War, World War II, uh, where the United States, at great cost to us, helped to rebuild Europe. And its proponents say that it likely did two things. One, it forestalled another war uh, because that was part of the problem in World War I, uh, that Germany was left decimated and they grew bitter and angry um, from the First World War, and so they began the second. And so the, the proponents of the Marshall Plan said that it kept Europe from falling into another world war. Uh, it also kept communism from spreading any further west. But what it cost was the United States. Uh, we had to engage in costly love uh, to people that we had fought against in a war. Um, but that is very much like the character of Jesus. We may not have had warm, fuzzy feelings about it, but we actively loved those who had sought to do us harm. Jesus goes on. He says, pray for those who persecute you. Think about what a persecutor is, someone who hounds you, someone who hates your very way of life. Jesus is saying, when someone is calling down curses on you, you ask God to bless them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, we cannot go on hating another man in the presence of God. The surest way of killing bitterness is to pray for the man we are tempted to hate. So Jesus is saying uh, we should actively seek the good of someone who is opposed to us. Why? Look at verse 45. He says, So that you may be sons and daughters of your Father who is in heaven. You see, when we 
actively seek the good of those who hate us. We're simply just acting like our Father in heaven. We are reflecting his love. We are reflecting his nature. We become like him. Just as a son becomes like, just as a biological son becomes like his biological father, so also if we're sons of God, we become like him. We begin to reflect his nature. We love our enemies because God loves his. We do that, uh, well, God does that in a general way. Jesus points out that he sends rain and sunshine on the righteous and on the unrighteous. We call that common grace. God shows common grace to everyone. It's a reflection of his love. But God also loves in special ways. He loves in redemptive ways. Steve read for us earlier from Romans 5 that tells us while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, while we were in rebellion against him, Christ died for us. So not only is that how we become sons of God, but that also becomes our standard for how we treat others, how we love others. One more quote. Listen to John Stott. The life of fallen humanity is based on rough justice, avenging injuries and returning favors. The life of redeemed humanity is based on divine love, refusing to take revenge, but overcoming evil with good. That's how Jesus challenges us. He, he challenges our natural response and he calls us to a supernatural love. And then he, he gives us a command, which also happens to be a promise. Look at verse 48. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is really a summary of the whole section we've been looking at. Uh, several weeks ago, we heard Jesus say, Your righteousness should exceed, must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And that's what Jesus has been showing us. Now, what does that look like? How far should our righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees? He says, until you're as perfect as your heavenly father. And Jesus is, Jesus is referring, uh, again, to the, to the Old Testament when God would give a command and he would say, be holy because I am holy. Jesus says, as you follow me, you will become perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. Now, it's written, we translate it here as a command, but it's actually also a future tense. He says, you therefore shall be or will be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. What does that mean? Not only is it a command, not only is it a journey, but it's also a destination that Jesus is telling us to work at becoming like our Father and that one day, someday, we will be like our Father. Paul gives us this promise in Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. What does he mean, perfect? To be perfect as God is perfect. Well, the word... We often think of like moral perfection, and certainly God is morally perfect. But this word actually 
means to be complete, to be mature, to arrive at the final destination of what you were intended to be. Right. So in that sense, we use the word perfect to describe the perfect boss or the perfect husband. Right. Somebody who reflects what it really means to be the the boss or the husband. Here, Jesus is saying that that he will renovate us so that when we are mature, as we mature, we will become like God. R.T. France, a life totally integrated to the will of God and thus reflecting his character. How does that happen? Well, in my discipleship groups earlier this week, we, we look at the principle of what we meditate on determines how we behave, right? What we spend all of our time thinking about and chewing on and meditating on, over time, that changes us, that, that renews us. It changes the way we think. It changes the way that we live. And so right now, I want you to think of your enemy. You may have multiple. I want you to think of that list. And then I want you to imagine that you were on that list. You were on God's list of enemies. And how did he approach you? How did he respond to you? He sent his son to die for you. And not when you said you were sorry. Paul writes in Romans 5, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were still sinners, while we were in the middle of open rebellion, Jesus pursued. And he won us. And so, if that's true, if that's true of your standing before God, then does that enable you to love those people on your list? At least to pursue the strength required by God to do that? The gospel transforms us, and it calls us. And so, as I said last week, the the only people for whom this makes sense are people who already know Jesus. If you are outside of Christ this morning, then Jesus' words make absolutely no sense. In fact, you could argue it's dangerous to live in such a way, uh, to love your enemies. But if you are in Christ... You have been forgiven, you have been loved and forgiven by God. And therefore, you have the power and motivation to love and forgive your enemies and pray for them. Let's pray together. God in heaven, we thank you that... You loved us while we were still sinners. Lord, I pray that you would use that gospel truth to change our hearts, to soften us towards our enemies, that we would show them the same indiscriminate love that you showed us. Now, that will take different forms in different situations and scenarios. And each of us will have to to work that out. But I pray, Lord, that you would give us the wisdom to work that out. That you would remove from our hearts bitterness, 
unforgiveness? Would you peel back that hardness? And would you replace it with love? May that be our disposition and mindset so that we are willing, if able, uh, to approach those uh, whom, with whom we differ and dislike. Make us people of love. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.